as was in the days of Noah, so it is today. Many people mock the idea of the biblical flood. But in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3-7, through 7, we read, quote, Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue just as they were from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed by being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly people. One thing upon which all Christians can agree is that there was indeed a literal flood as described in the book of Genesis chapters 6 through 9. Jesus himself refers to the days of Noah in Matthew and Luke. But in recent times, Christians have been divided, sometimes bitterly, on the question of the extent of the flood as well as the age of the earth. It is more important than ever for us as believers to be united and to demonstrate our love toward one another, as that is what Jesus says will show the world we are his disciples. This does not mean, of course, we set aside the importance of sound doctrine and biblical interpretation, but that in our differences, we maintain our love for one another. In that spirit, we here at Watchmen have put together a few episodes about the biblical flood. On our sister podcast, Good Heavens, you can hear a perspective on Noah's flood from young earth creationist and geologist Dr. Tim Clary of the Institute for Creation Research here in Dallas. See the links in the description notes below for that program. And on this episode, and in the second part to follow... We talk with astrophysicist and old earth creationist Dr. Hugh Ross of Reasons to Believe about his geological point of view regarding Noah's flood. We hope our guests and our conversations model how we as Christians can agree and disagree in love and charity toward one another. Both Dr. Clary and Dr. Ross affirm a biblical flood and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They both have a heart to edify and encourage the body of Christ and a passion to reach those who don't know Jesus. Here on part one, we delve into the Bible and explore what it has to say about the flood and why we can confidently accept it as historical. On part two, we discuss more of the scientific differences between an old and a young earth paradigm. Here is Dr. Hugh Ross. Where we can build a bridge... Uh, young earth creationists and those of us of reasons to believe do agree that there was a flood that wiped out all of humanity and all the animals that are associated with humanity. And we disagree on the extent of the flood, but we do agree in that point. And we agree that the biblical accounts of the flood need to be taken as literal history. Yes. So that, that's the place where we can agree. Yeah. A few years ago, I debated Marcus Ross who's probably the leading uh, young earth creationist who is an expert on the flood. And what's interesting in our debate is that, uh, you know, we, we had a friendly debate and we talked a lot afterwards, the, the debate as well, again, very friendly, but he was very open that there are scientific issues with a global flood theory that no young earth model is able to overcome. So he's well aware that there are issues out there. Uh, but we found ourselves in basic agreement on what the biblical text says, 
we did have a debate on whether the Bible allows for a global flood. You know, I take the position that if you actually read all the flood texts in the Bible, not just those in Genesis, you've got a, a very powerful biblical case that a literal reading of those texts does state that all of humanity was wiped out, but also is explicit. It's not the whole globe. Right. Okay. So that, that that's a fantastic perspective because uh, all three of the, the old earth geologists that I spoke with beforehand had said, well, the Grand Canyon, for example, just as an example, right. um, it was not an example of a total global aquatic inundation. Um, you know, Tim's like, well, it's it was laid down and then cut out uh, by a global flood. So uh, I do want to talk about the science for sure. I want to get your oh, yeah. per- perspective. Oh, I'm, I'm willing to go there. Right. And, and so what I think w- will be helpful is if we begin with, um, let, let's just start in Matthew uh, 24 or Luke uh, 17, which is the title of your, it's where the title of your video comes from, I believe. Is that correct? In the days of Noah. Um, right. As Jesus is, is talking about this, Jesus identifies uh, that, that, that there was a noetic flood. I mean, he says this right in the text, and, and we can trust the words of our Savior. We know that Jesus is not speaking a lie, that right, you know, right. he's not just talking about a, a few villages in and around the Black Sea, that, uh, you know, as you say in your video, it, several thousand miles, of, several thousand square feet, maybe, uh, square miles, uh, were inundated in and around the, the ancient, what we would consider to be the ancient Near East. Um, I, I like the, the way in which you, you, you outline in the video how Noah was on top of the boat and he had this, uh, you know, the higher up you are, the farther out you can see. That was a good analogy. Um, so we'll get into the science, but I, I, I do want to start with, with Scripture, as you did in the presentation, and we can, we can outline the case for why we should take the flood seriously. And then we can talk about the science of, of the, the, the differences in the science between a, a young earth total global aquatic inundation and, and your, your perspective. Uh, that, that, that's more than local, but it's not global, which is an interesting one that I'm not too terribly familiar with. So we'll, we'll talk about that. Well, uh, another so- background is I participated in a weekend uh, conference. It was closed doors, basically people with doctoral degrees. Mm-hmm. And uh, three young earth creationist theologians each gave an hour long talk on why they thought the flood had to be global. Mm. And I had 45 minutes to respond to them. Oh, wow. So it was interesting <laughs> how we were able to come to a significant agreement. That's good. Uh, that's that, good. you know, if you take the uh, biblical text about the laws of physics not changing, that settles everything. And I found, too, that if you kind of just stick with the biblical issues and go through all 66 books, you can get agreement. Yeah. Uh, in fact, yeah. just yesterday when I was in Missouri, I was, uh, you know, confronted by a number of global flood proponents. We spent about 10 minutes going through the biblical text, and we wound up agreeing. Yeah, and and that is, you know, when I think what Jesus says. People, people, we will know, as Christians, people will know who Jesus is by our love for one another. And, and, and so rather than finding lines in the sand to draw and say, you stay over there and I'll stay over here and I'll throw rocks at you and you can throw mud at me, uh, let's let's erase those lines and and come together and see what what we have and can agree upon as Christians in relation to what the text of Scripture is telling us and how that gives us the freedom to freely explore the scientific questions without condemning each other as well. So I want to uh, I know we can't go through your video <laughs> all the way. Um, right. it, it's it's very well done and uh, and and I. I, I I really enjoyed listening to it. I especially was edified by the uh, 
the emphasis that you, that you begin with scripture. So um, let's let's we started with Matthew twenty four, Luke seventeen, where Jesus affirms the the noetic flood, and so I'll let you unpack, uh, begin to unpack uh, as you did in the video, uh, Genesis six through nine, and, and why this isn't just you know the epic of Gilgamesh or or some other flood tale that you find all over the world. Um, why why can we trust that this is historical, Dr. Ross? Well, one reason why I think the flood account we see in the Bible is credible, it's not just Genesis 6, 7, and 8, and 9 that talk about the flood, but many passages throughout the 66 books of the Bible address the flood. And also, uh, in terms of ancient cultures, we actually have more flood stories and flood legends than we do have creation stories and legends, over 150. And uh, it's ubiquitous uh, throughout all the different cultures of the world. So something must have happened to explain why we have all these stories uh, recorded in cultures that weren't connected with one another. You know, some story must have been passed down. So I think it's very difficult to avoid concluding that there had to be some really devastating flood uh, that substantially impacted humanity. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and there people can differ in saying, well, we think it wiped out all of humanity. That's the position we hold that reasons to believe that it wiped out all of humanity except the eight people on board Noah's Ark. Mm-hmm. And likewise wiped out all the animals, the soulish animals that were associated with humanity, except for those uh, on board the Ark. Uh, so I think to take the position that uh, there was no flood at all uh, is historically untenable and it's biblically untenable. Okay, well, that, thank you for that. That's it. you bring up the idea of 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 all of the world um, and, and everything that has breath, right? This idea of a soul and breath and wind. We know that life in Genesis was God breathed, and then we know that in order, it, it seems like. And you make a pretty good case of this, and it just started to occur to me as I'm watching the video. It seems like, you know, the end of Act 1, Scene 1, where we know in the beginning where God separates the water and creates dry land and puts life upon it and breathes life into it. But then because of the wickedness of the whole cosmos, the Greek, right, uh, or the Eretz, right, the land had become corrupt, that we see, you know, the Greek word, the the Hebrew is tohu and bohu, formless and void. And, and as you probably know, for the sake of our audience, that appears in Gen- Jeremiah 4.23 and Isaiah 34.11, where God is judging the people for having corrupted the Eretz, the land, to, to the extent that it is void and formless. Your corruption, you've corrupted the earth. You've corrupted the land. So that, that, that really opened my mind to the idea of God wiping out the, the moral iniquity of the entire Eretz, whatever that you know, whatever that may be. So, yeah, but be careful because uh, there's more than just the word Eretz that's used in Genesis yes. 6, 7, and 8. It also uses the word Karabah for the land. Right, which right. Which is a Hebrew word that can never be used for the totality of the land surface of the earth. So that's actually a text that people will look at and say, right there in Genesis uh, 7 and 8, it tells us, that the flood could not have inundated all the land masses of the earth. And you brought up the idea of judgment. I think it's key to understand uh, Noah's flood in the context of God dealing with reprobate human behavior. Mm. And it tells us in Romans 1, we also see it in the book of Judges, uh, that 
societal reprobation is a cancer. It's a moral cancer in danger of infecting all of humanity. Right. And just like God had to surgically remove Sodom and Gomorrah mm. because of the fact that the reprobation had gotten to a point where it was malignant in mm. danger of infecting all of humanity, likewise what was happening, and you see this in Genesis 6, it uses Hebrew words for the wickedness of that generation. Yeah. It's used nowhere else in the Bible, mm. basically making the point we're dealing with extreme societal reprobation. Mm. And in order to save humanity, that had to be surgically removed. Mm. Mm. However, we see in the book of Leviticus that human reprobation has a limit on how much it can ruin. Uh, it can definitely ruin the children uh, yes. that are born to these people. It can be that bad. And it can impact all the nephesh animals mm. that are in relationship with the humans. And that's what's interesting. We go through uh, Job or uh, Genesis 7 and 8. Yeah. It uses different words for the animals in the Hebrew and basically is telling us that the judgment of the flood came upon all ungodly people and all the nephesh animals, the soulish mm. animals that were in relationship with those human beings. Yeah. And what's interesting, the book of Leviticus tells us it is those animals that can be damaged by exposure to human reprobation. So, for example, you've got a passage in Leviticus that says, if a cow is in the habit of goring other animals and right. humans, the owner is to be spoken to. Mm. And if the cow continues in that behavior, the cow is to be destroyed and the owner along with it. Making the point that the reason why the cow is behaving that way is because like all nephesh animals that are designed by God to serve and please their human owners. Mm. And if what brings pleasure to their human owners is vicious behavior, that's how the animal is going to behave. It's not that the cow is a sinner. The cow is simply trying to please its human owner. Wow. But if the human owner is reprobate and vicious, that's how the animal is going to behave. However, Leviticus makes it clear that human reprobation has no impact on the non-soulish animals. It's not going to change the behavior of flies or frogs. <laughs> it's not going to change the behavior of the cockroaches. Yeah. They're going yeah. to be the same. Right. Although people uh, would argue that, that the insects are <laughs> are terrifyingly reprobate in, in their actions when they invade our homes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I think mean, you can say that about some species of mosquitoes. Sure. Have a way of <laughs> right. So, right. 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 Uh, that's just because we don't have a lot of fur in our bodies. So we're <laughs> yeah. easy targets. Right. Right. Uh, but, uh, and the point too is if it's a nephesh animal that has had no contact with humans, that animal will not be damaged by human reprobation. Gotcha. That's why we take the position of reasons to believe that God had no need to destroy all the emperor penguins. Mm. Those emperor penguins would have had zero contact with humans. Mm. They would not have been damaged by human reprobation. So there's no need for God to wipe them out. Okay. He was simply wiping on it. And you see that with the animals, God had Noah take on board the ark. Right. He took on board the ark representatives of all the animals, the soulish animals that have been damaged by the reprobate people. Mm. And so uh, Noah took on board a limited number of species of life, mm. basically to preserve those uh, that were essential for launching human civilization, 
but had already been significantly damaged by reprobate humans. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so let's talk about, we've, we've talked about reprobation, we've talked about sin, we know that began in Genesis chapter 3, and we have that proto-evangelion of, of God's promise to crush the head of the serpent, and and so we see that that in the beginning in Genesis, what is God doing? He's hovering over the waters, right? I mean, you know this. I'm not. I'm, I'm extrapolating for the sake of our audience, just as a review. I don't mean to say that you don't know any of this. Of course, you do. Um, and and so it's interesting though that that in in creation, God is making these declarations as He's hovering over the water. He's He's bringing about order from the the void. He's bringing about light from the darkness, and then. As, as scripture progresses after the fall, we see that water is continually involved in the way in which God judges the world. I mean, the disciples are amazed by Jesus's being able to command the wind and the waves. But it seems to me if the disciples knew their Old Testament, that should not have been a surprise, right? I mean, they should have, if they knew Yahweh as the Old Testament describes him, they, he is sovereign over the waters. And uh, you mentioned in the video something that one of my favorite books in all the Bible, and I have your book on Job, and I've been meaning to read it, but I would love to. Uh, one of these days I'm going to get to it. But you mentioned Job 38, and it brings up the idea of creation. You say that, and I, I, I would agree with you, that I think it, it predates the writing of Genesis. So we have something before creation, an elucidation of creation from God himself, right? He's speaking in Genesis, but then he's really speaking in Job. And Job outlines... Uh, Job 38 outlines God's sovereignty over the waters. Can you explain a little bit about what the text of Job is saying about the flood, the waters, and all that? Well, it begins by saying that uh, you know God had blanketed the seas with clouds that kept the seas dark. Mm -hmm. So that wonderfully affirms how we should interpret Genesis 1-2. Mm. It was dark over the surface of the yeah, deep. Yeah. It was dark not because there was no light. It was dark because the light of the cosmos was not able to get through the clouds. It was the clouds that were responsible for the darkness on the face of the deep. And then that was Job 38, 8, 9. As you read on, it talks about how uh, God created barriers uh, for the waters. Mm -hmm. That's a reference to creation day three. Uh, when God transforms planet Earth from a water world, where we now have oceans and continents coexisting. Mm. And so Job 38 talks about a God set of bars, barriers mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, that would prevent the waters from overcoming uh, the whole surface of the earth. And this is consistent with what you see in Psalm 104. Psalm 104, the entirety of it is a creation psalm. Mm -hmm. It's the most detailed of the creation psalms. And it takes you through the content of the six days, not chronologically, but it does address each of the six days of creation mm -hmm. and verse six is where it starts to talk about the uh, creation day three uh, where God again uh, creates these land masses and you know basically stops the waters from covering the whole face of the earth and when you get to verse nine it has this direct statement never again will the waters ever cover the whole face of the earth mm. So that's one passage I take people to to say the Bible here explicitly states that Noah's flood did not cover the entire globe. That's consistent with Job 38. It's consistent with the other three creation psalms. It's also consistent uh, with Proverbs 8. Okay. Now, now whenever you... I brought that up to people who take a global flood perspective, mm -hmm. 
their comeback is, well, Hugh, you're citing poetic texts. Mm. And so they will take the position that you, we really can't interpret the poetry in the Bible as literal statements. But my pushback to that is it's Hebrew poetry. It's not English poetry. Yeah. And Hebrew poetry was frequently used by the ancient Hebrews uh, to communicate specific didactic truths. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the best examples of that is the book of Isaiah. Yes. The poetry in the book of Isaiah explicitly states the details of the doctrine of the Trinity. Mm. And so I don't see Hebrew poetry as uh, being feeble in its ability or capacity to communicate didactic truth, which means I think we have to take these six independent uh, poetic texts in the wisdom books seriously. It literally is telling us that the flood, yes, it wiped it all of humanity. It wiped it all the animals associated with humanity, except for those on board the ark, but it not, did not cover the entire globe. And that's crucial when you're engaging non-Christians. Non-Christians will immediately cite the scientific evidence, uh, which refutes the idea of a global flood. But there's no scientific evidence refuting the idea that there was a flood extensive enough to wipe out all humanity, except for those on board a boat, especially when you put the flood in the context of an Ice Age event. And I argue, particularly in this book, Navigating Genesis, there's five chapters in this book on Noah's flood. And I basically make the point that if you read Genesis chapter 8, it tells us that the flood lasted 40 days, and the flood waters were significant for a five-month period, and then the waters receded. And so you got the waters receding anywhere from seven and a half months to 11 months, That's a long time for a flood to recede. And basically, I make the point, the only way you could have that massive of a flood, you're talking a minimum of 15 cubits over all the hills that people could see at that time. And if you look at this book here, I actually have a map showing you what I believe to be the extent of Noah's flood during the Ice Age. It's much bigger than what you see in most old earth defenses of uh, of uh, Noah's flood because they put it at the wrong time. They put a post ice age, not during the ice age, put it during the ice age. you got a very extensive flood more than enough to wipe out all of humanity and all their animals. But what explains the extent of the flood for that period of time, you have a huge amount of melting ice and snow. And it's only during the ice age where you got enough snow and ice to be able to sustain a flood of that magnitude for seven to 11 months. And so, yes, we got water flowing out into the uh, Indian Ocean, but all the water flows out is being replaced by the meltwaters of a huge amount of ice and snow. Now, a good example of that is what happened in the Mississippi Valley about 30 years ago. Uh, There was a huge melt-off of snow uh, from the Canadian and American Rockies, and it swelled up the uh, Missouri and Mississippi rivers to an extent where there was a flood 50 feet deep mm. uh, that covered 50,000 uh, square miles of the Mississippi Valley. It took more than four months for that water to recede. Wow. So, I mean, here you got this huge flood covering the Mississippi. This, this is just 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it does tell us, and we see this in geology, 
the only times where you get a massive flood lasting for months is where you got a lot of melting snow and ice. Okay. Um, now, a couple of things, a couple of clarifying questions in a couple of parts here. Um, backing up to Psalm 104, uh, and this is a quick one you can you can address. Um, Psalm 104, you had mentioned that in, in, in the context of God setting a, a boundary for the sea, which, which is undeniable. Obviously, this is mentioned elsewhere that God says, you know, in Job, in the, in the psalm that you mentioned. Uh, here, here your proud waves must stop. Here are the bars. Here are the doors. Here are the gates. We're not going any farther than this. God is establishing the boundaries and the sovereignty over the waters. Um, some people have said that, that, that what you're reading in Psalm 104 well, where the waters won't cover the, 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 the earth again, is alluding to the promise of Genesis 9-11, um, that, that what we have there is, is something of, of, of a double meaning in Psalm 104. How would you respond to, to, to that? Oh, you're right. I mean, uh, global flood proponents will insist that Psalm 104 has got nothing to do with creation. Yes. It's all about the flood. My response to that is read the entire psalm. I mean, it's citing many uh, instances of God's creative work. Mm. It's an incredible parallel to Genesis chapter one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you'll look how it ends. So, and again, Hebrew scholars centuries before us all agreed that this was a creation of text. Uh, it's only recently that people have tried to look at this text and say, no, it's got nothing to do with creation. It's all about the flood. My whole point is that's a very difficult interpretation to put onto Psalm 104, particularly when you've got other creation psalms. Yeah. It's not the only creation psalm. Right. So right. I, I, I'm compelled to interpret it as a creation psalm. Do we, do, would you say with the, sometimes the, uh, you're bringing this up in the video, the nature of Hebrew language and poetry, uh, sometimes there's a dearth of adjectives in Hebrew. If you've studied Hebrew, you, you know this. It's hard to go, well, this word means 17 different things, depending on the context. Really, literally. I mean, you know that. Right, right. And, and, and so um, some people might say, Dr. Russ, that Psalm 104 is both flood and creation and just God's sovereignty over both. I created it. I flood the world. I promised I won't do it again. Can we look at both? Can we have our cake and eat it too in Psalm 104? Yeah, I do agree that you can interpret Psalm 104 as being more than just a creation psalm. I mean, it's certainly bringing up attributes of God. Mm. And so that's in the text. I do find it extremely difficult to put any flood uh, message in there. Okay. I mean, uh, and basically people are trying to get around Psalm 104, uh, verse 9. That I mean, that that is catastrophic. Right. To a global flood interpretation. Right. So it doesn't surprise me the global flood pro- proponents insist this is talking about Noah's flood. Okay. Uh, okay. But I don't see any exegetical support for that. Okay. Particularly when you uh, you know look at Psalm 104 in the context of Proverbs 8 yeah. uh, and Job 37 to 39. It's written the same way. And uh, you know, my friends who are uh, uh, young earth creationists and global flood proponents, interestingly, Interestingly, they agree that Proverbs 8 is about creation. Mm. They agree that Job 37, 38, and 39 are about creation. Yes. They also agree that these shorter psalms are creation psalms. Yeah. Well, how can you deny that Psalm 104 is a creation psalm? <laughs> right. Why, why exclude that? Why, why be so? Yeah, exactly. Well, and I think. It's the most explicit of the creation yeah, texts of what it books. But I think we bring up an, an excellent exegetical hermeneutical question for all believers, Hugh, Dr. Ross. And, and that is we take a position 
based on current science, and then we go to the text with our science and read it through the hermeneutical lens of modern contemporary science, and we we cut out from the text um, what we what we want to maintain our position, and we we sort of ignore the rest. I mean, this is this has been a phenomenally difficult problem for the church ever since Darwin, right? Or uh, that 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 the scientific is kind of overriding or, or becoming instead of the handmaid, instead of a, a servant of the word, it becomes a lord, if you will, cap the lowercase l o r d. But the hermeneutics. It is influenced by by our presuppositions that we bring to the text, and I'm not talking atheists. I'm talking, you know, believers, right? Oh, definitely. That, that... No, no, I completely agree with you, which is why I think God blessed us with 66 books <laughs> rather than just three. Rather than books. just one, right? 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 Or one, like you see, like if you look at the other religions of the world, it's a single book, right? One guy, one book, three books. Yeah. Right. Bible's got 66 books. Different authors. And I look at science the same way. We don't have just one discipline of science. We've right. got dozens of disciplines of science. Right. Multifaceted, absolutely. absolutely. And we have the biblical doctrine of dual revelation. Right. That right. God has revealed himself through two books, the book of Scripture and the book of nature. Absolutely. But both the book of nature and the book of Scripture are composed of multiple books. Mm-hmm. And so I think mm-hmm. what God is telling us, look, I've revealed myself to you through these two books. My revelation is utterly trustworthy and reliable. Mm -hmm. Your human interpretations are not. (laughs) That's right. Which is why I've given you multiple books in both of my books. Yeah. And the principle there is before we draw a conclusion of what's true and not true, we need to integrate the content of all 66 books of the Bible. Right. Never draw a doctrine based on just one book of the Bible. You need yes, to look at all yes. the books of the Bible. And I'd say the yeah. same thing to scientists. I know yeah. a lot of evolutionary biologists who build a history of life only looking at paleontology and genetics. And so you need to take into account the changing physics of the sun. So solar physics is an issue for developing a correct history and interpretation of the origin and history of life. And when you do that from a scientific perspective, the naturalistic model goes out the window. Uh, but if you never if you never integrate solar astrophysics with paleontology, you will not get the right answer. Yeah, yeah. The sun is an amazing, ever changing uh, place. We are we could get we could just spend an hour. I love uh, we we both astronomy is your first thing, and I love astronomy. I'm not a scientist, but I, I love stargazing and, and stars. So here we are talking about geology, Doctor Ross. So it's just kind of hard for me not to pick your brain about the cosmos. <laughs> um, it's very sure. tempting. Um, but speaking of that. Um, that brings me to my next question. We've been talking about the nature of scientific paradigms and how that influences our hermeneutics and our exegetics. Um, and, and a distinction I, I, I would, I, I'm sure you can make, and I, and I hope you will make. How do we, how do we avoid, or what's the best way to approach this? How do we know if we're reading planet, globe, or just land when we look at the text? Well, something you mentioned earlier is that you know biblical Hebrew, unlike English, has a very small vocabulary, mm-hmm. and the nouns have multiple literal definitions. Right. And as you said, we have to look at the adjectives. Mm -hmm. The adjectives will help us figure, okay, which of these literal definitions should we use? Mm -hmm. Uh, The word arrest uh, can mean the entire planet Earth. It can mean the entire nation that you're in or the entire city that you're in, or it can mean the ground in your backyard. So there's all these different options for how to interpret the word arrest or arrest. there are other Hebrew words. I mentioned one already, the word karabah, uh, which can't be used for the whole planet, but it can be used for part of the land. Okay. 
And so, again, you go through Genesis 6, 7, and 8 and say, okay, which words are used for the land? It actually uses several different words. It does use the word arrest most frequently, which is why my friends who are global flood proponents will push that. Mm. They'll say, look how many times the word arrest shows up. And it's always accompanied with all or every. And they think this. They're thinking sphere. They think it has to be the whole globe. Gotcha. I said, well, there's nothing that compels that interpretation. It could be that interpretation, Mm -hmm. but it also could be just part of the globe. Okay. And the fact that it uses the word karaba tells us it can't be the whole globe. Okay. So if you actually look at all the Hebrew words, and again, this is a hermeneutical lesson here. Mm. Don't draw an interpretation based on just one uh, noun that you see in the text. Mm. Well, just like we were talking about, there's many different words for the animals. Mm-hmm. And you need to look at all those words to see which animals uh, God was going after uh, to wipe out. So the fact that you see the word uh, basar use, I think is significant. That's a word in Hebrew that's explicitly for the soulish animals that are in a bonded relationship with human beings. Mm-hmm. So it helps us understand yeah. which animals uh, were being uh, targeted uh, for the flood. Okay. So I think we're basically talking a lot about hermeneutics. Yeah, that's important. That, yeah, it's very important. And Noah's flood is a great opportunity. In fact, I have a friend who's a theologian who teaches a class on hermeneutics, and he uses the example of Noah's flood as the way to illustrate hermeneutical principles. Hmm. So I think this is a great teaching tool for the church. Yes. Uh, Let's look at what the Bible says about the flood and see if that can guide us in how we're to be interpreting all of the Bible. Okay. One thing that that you established early on in the video that watched um, in the days of Noah is uh, non-flood references, both in the Old and New Testament, of this concept of what is meant contextually by the whole world. Um, And that was very interesting because it it seems to be so, you know, we are so literal in our 21st century way of which we read books. We want to quote exact words. We want a footnote, 15 footnotes, if you can find them, right? We want the exact words. We want all the ellipses. We want all the commas. We want the the spelling. We're very exact people. Um, And we go to our, you know, we go to the text and we have this, a lot of people, and I. this was fascinating when I took Greek and Hebrew in seminary for a year. Uh, no commas, no periods, right. no pronunciation guide. You know, some of the older Greek manuscripts are just just a giant catalog of, of run together, what we would call sentences just ran together. There's no punctuation, and you're like, where do I separate any of this? So right. we, we, it was good for you to, I appreciate you unpacking this, the kind of, I wouldn't, I would call it, I guess, hyperbole, you know, a little bit of an exaggeration. The, the, the language of the text seems to, seems to be okay with, with saying the whole world, meaning the known world that was inhabited by the, the moral agents, that, that that's really what a lot of them were saying, that, that, that all the known world of the people. So you, you localize this. You show that the whole world just meant Greek and Rome and, and whatever. Well, you bring up a good hermeneutical point. That's a point we hold at Reasons to Believe. We believe the Bible was inspired for all generations, not just the peoples of the ancient Near East, not for us living in the 21st century, but for all generations, from the time of Job and Moses right up till now. And that should help us guide how we're to interpret the text. Okay, given that it's for all these generations, we would expect that the text would be silent on dinosaurs, Neanderthals, neutrinos, uh, protons, because <laughs> yeah. that would have no basis 
of meaning uh, right. for the ancient peoples. Exactly. Exactly. But likewise, we'd expect that the Bible would have predictive power. Right? That's how I became a Christian. I was not raised in a Christian home, mm. but I realized this book was written not just to one generation, but the multiple generations. Mm-hmm. In the Old Testament, we see these Old Testament authors predicting what's going to happen in future human history mm. Mm. and predicting future scientific discoveries. That was very powerful for me to realize, okay, this book has got predictive power. The Quran does not. Yeah. The Hindu Vedas do not. Right. The Buddhist commentaries do not. And that was my first clue that the message that we see in the Bible came from a being that transcends the limits of human knowledge and visualization. Yes, yes. Uh, so I think it's important that we actually recognize that there's a mission or a missiology an evangelistic hermeneutic in the Bible. Mm. All the books of the Bible are written in such a way as to bring unbelievers to faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. And so if we take that hermeneutic perspective, I think it helps us understand what the text is all about. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. must be written in a way that's going to bring people to faith in God uh, 15 centuries ago, 25 centuries ago, 35 centuries ago, but also in this century. Right, right. So we would expect that it's not going to have material in it that's going to be offensive to 21st century readers. Right, but right. neither will it have material in it that's going to be offensive to people of Moses' generation. Right, right. And so I think that helps us. Right, and right. Particularly when you're dealing with a small vocabulary language, yes. we really need these hermeneutical guides. Right, right. And and so along the lines of you establishing the, the uh, very well, I would say the the, the 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 concept of the way of the which the the world or cosmos is utilized, um, because in the in Genesis we have you know the only Hebrew I remembered from Hebrew that I can speak, Barashit Barat Elohim et Hashemayim va'et Haeretz, is in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The the merism, right? God created everything. Colossians right. 1, Jesus is Lord of all. Um, so I want to address, uh, and, and since this is astronomy, I would love, I get to, this is an excuse for me to talk astronomy with you, <laughs> uh, but it does pertain to our conversation. So um, one use, I think, where you see, and, and I could be wrong, and I would love to, to have you expound on this. Psalm 19, one of my favorite verses, in the, uh, the heavens declare the, the, the kabod, the glory of God, and the firmament or the skies show his handiwork. Day unto day pours forth speech, night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there is no language, or their line has gone out, or their voice has gone out throughout the whole world. Now, since we're talking about the heavens, to me that would seem, would, would you allow for that verse to pertain to, to a global knowledge of God's Kabbalah? Oh, yeah. yeah, because in uh, you have this in, um, Paul's quoting it in Romans 10, 18. Have they not all heard? Yes, they have. And what does he do? He right. quotes Psalm 19. Uh, their line has gone out throughout the whole world. So are, there are, would you say, I would I would assume, there are more than just one of these verses where there, there are contextually, there are uh, hermeneutically, there are whole world, what we would consider to be global references, correct? Would you, would you agree? No, I definitely agree with that. Uh, where I would disagree with some of my friends is, not every reference to the whole world in the Old Testament means the entire planet Earth. Right, okay. I mean, you've got many examples. It tells us that the kings and queens of the whole world came to Solomon to hear of his great wisdom. Yes. But if you read a couple of verses on, it says they came from as far away as Ethiopia and southern Arabia. Mm. 
clearly that's not that's including not Australia right. and Peru. Right. right. Uh, so it's that's a reference to the whole world being less than the entire planet. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think you're making a good point. You need to look at the context to see whether it's referring to the entire planet or just part of the planet. Right. And right. keep in mind that until the oh, middle 19th century, uh, people all over the world would use terms like the entire world, and clearly they didn't mean the entire world. Sure, sure. So right. we need to recognize our 21st century bias. Yeah. Anyone Absolutely. living in the 21st century using the term the whole world, they mean the whole planet. Right. And, and you know, we've become a global civilization. It's a bit of humor for me to think about what people 2,000 years from now will think of phrases like the whole kitchen sink or all that in a bag of chips or whatever we use a colloquialism for everything, right? That, that they would right. make fun of our. In fact, you, you see this when we, you teach somebody English and they're trying to learn English phrases and they're like, what does the whole kitchen sink mean? <laughs> you know, right. so there's that, there's that, you know, there's the babble problem, right? The, the, the separation of languages and all that. Um, so Psalm 50 verse six is one of my favorite verses as well. Uh, the heavens declare God's righteousness. And I think that's a nice fit with Romans one as Romans one starts off in Romans one eighteen, that God's righteousness is revealed from heaven or the heavens against all ungodliness. The, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness from the heavens And so we have this idea where the flood, right, from the heavens that God's judgment is pouring down, that he's going to wipe out the the world with water. And uh, so it it seems like, so if I'm understanding your position correctly, please correct me if I'm wrong, that, that, that the judgment that we see is the whole world, but your concept of the world only means that the living nefesh of humans and animals affected by sin, the only way in which we can know God's wrath and, and righteousness is through sentient beings. And so it makes sense that God reveals himself to people who have a moral nature. So I can... Well, I, you said earlier, look at the adjectives. Okay. And if you go to the New Testament, Second Peter in two places talks about Noah's flood. Second mm. Peter 2, verse 5, it says, the flood of Noah wiped out the world of ungodly people. Mm-hmm. So it uses the word cosmos, which can mean the whole universe, yeah. the whole earth, or mm-hmm. part of the earth. But he puts an adjective with it. It's the world of ungodly people. Tote. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, that that's a word he uses in Second, Second Peter. Pe- that's 3, the other Peter. That's the other Peter, right. right Where he right, says, right. yeah. In that passage, it talks about how the flood of Noah wiped out the world that existed at that time. That's correct. Yes, I get that. Yeah. Confused. If Peter meant the entire world, he would have just let the word cosmos sit by itself. Mm. But the fact that he attached an adjective to cosmos, the adjective tote, saying, no, we're talking about the world that existed at that time. Mm. And what's interesting about that, you've got Paul in his letters in the New Testament saying that uh, the gospel has gone out throughout the whole world. Right. Well, he meant the Roman Empire. Yeah, he was not referring to the Aborigines in Australia. He meant the Roman Empire. Right, that was the whole world of the people who were living in Rome at the time. Mm. Mm. And so, what Peter is doing is contrasting the world of Rome with the world of Noah, and that would indicate that the world of Noah uh, was not larger than the world of Rome. Uh, and then you got in Second Peter two five, it's the world of ungodly people that was wiped out which is basically using an adjective to say it's the world where ungodly people lived. And 
whether you take a young earth perspective or an old earth perspective on it, I find that we all agree that at that time, there were no humans in Antarctica, there were no humans in Greenland, there were no humans in uh, Svalbard. And so why would God flood those regions if no people were living there? Right. And none of our animals were living there. Right, right. And I, I just want to make this, I think, I think this is this is, poet, this is a wonderful expression of Hebrew poetry, and, and, and you can unpack this more. Um, we have Moses, we have Jonah, we have Israel themselves, the children of Israel, we have Peter, and we have Noah. And what do they all have in common that God is using in a very, infl- we could even throw Jacob in there if we go to Jabbok's Ford and his wrestling match in Genesis 32. Uh, I did a whole exegetical paper on Genesis 32 where the cutting of, there's lots of words for cutting and creating about how the water is cutting and creating the, the, the ford of Jabbok. It goes into great detail about that. And that that's what God is doing with Jacob. He's cutting and crafting and forming, touching his hip and all that. But Moses, Jonah, Israel, Peter, and Noah all have water in common with either deliverance or judgment, right? Noah, the flood, obviously. Peter, what does he have to do with water? Well, he steps out on the water. And he looks around, and then he starts to sink when he sees the waves, right? Or, or when he's afraid, and he's in the boat, and Lord, save us, we're drowning. Don't you care that we're perishing? And then he rescues Peter. And then Jonah. Jonah was not only brought under the water, but he was swallowed by a great fish. And, you know, so there's this wonderful sense of water being utilized, both for judgment and salvation, where, where God is, is, is sovereignly acting, um, whether in Christ or in the pre-incarnate Christ in Yahweh, where God is sovereignly acting, um, with water to to help shape and guide and direct, you know, like in Job, can you guide the bear and her satellites? Can you can you lead Israel through the wilderness? Can you part the waters? Right, you know, Moses and the sea and the judgment upon the Egyptians. Um, just for just a little excursus, how how do you see that, that God's declaration of sovereignty um, it, throughout the text with with water? Why why the water, Hugh? What is so? Weird. Well, what is what is it about water that that God is so intimately involved with that in our lives? Well, you're making the point that God often demonstrates His sovereignty, but what He does with water, you know, parting the Red yeah, Sea. Yeah. And when when I look at the Noah's uh, flood, in order to wipe out all of humanity, as extensive as they were, and all the animals associated with them, mm. you need God controlling water in three distinct miraculous ways. Mm. And what you see in the text, it says there was torrential rain that came down. Yeah. Well, it came down in an area that never gets torrential rain. Mm. So this is a clear indication of, I mean, if it happened in coastal British Columbia, ah, don't worry about it. Deal. <laughs> uh, but the fact that it happened in the Persian Gulf area, this mm. place never gets torrential rain. Right. And it lasted 40 days and 40 nights. Yeah. A clear sign that God's responsible uh, for this act of judgment. Mm. And then it talks about the waters underneath being brought to the surface, Mm. which is why I believe this has to be an Ice Age event, because the only place where you got a really big water aquifer is the Persian Gulf area. You do have one in the Mesopotamian plain, Mm. but you got a much bigger one underneath the Persian Gulf. Interesting. And during the Ice Age, what we now call a Persian Gulf was almost entirely dry land because the sea levels were about 400 feet lower. And then, uh, so you would need a major tectonic event to bring all that water to the surface mm-hmm. and bring it up so suddenly that it just basically wiped everybody out. Yeah. And combine that with a heat event where you have this massive melting of ice and snow mm-hmm. from all the mountains surrounding the area. 
And so what you're seeing is a combination of three divine miracles all happening simultaneously. Mm. Basically shows us why it is that those wicked people could not escape the waters. Mm. Because typically when we have a flood today, people are able to run away from it, or at least a few are able to escape. Even with a tsunami, you've got survivors. Well, here in Texas, people like to drive right, right through floods, Hugh. So it... All right. <laughs> <laughs> There's always danger on the news. Don't drive through rising waters, you know, and in flash floods. But people, every time there's rain in, in, in north central Texas, you see pictures of cars well, floating. Yesterday I was in Missouri and I saw massive floods throughout southern Missouri. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. So that happens. But mm-hmm, what we mm-hmm. see here in the book of Genesis is God making it clear this is no natural phenomenon. Right. I am the right. one that's bringing this judgment upon it. Three simultaneous miraculous events all to do with water. And the combination of three means there's going to be zero survivors that are not on board the ark. There's no, there's no ability for them to run away right. or to escape. Right, right. And, and it's interesting, too, because in the midst of uh, one of my, probably my favorite text in, in the Noah story is, uh, is Noah found grace. In the eyes of the Lord, God is always sparing a remnant. If you look at, um, I know this is after the flood, but if you look at the t- context of, of Jeremiah 4, uh, 23 through 30, I think it is, um, it, it's very similar to to um, to Genesis. Uh, it, it's the tohu bohu, the, 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 the land has become you know formless and void because of people's immorality. God says, I'm going to wipe it all out, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to do a total destruction, right? There's always a remnant that God that God spares. So Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. And sometimes I think in the discussions about the science of this, all of this, Hugh, we forget, we, 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 we do laser focus on God's judgment, which is good. You know, I mean, for us to, to remember that. Um, but in the midst of that judgment, as, as one of the minor prophets says in your wrath, remember mercy. And, and so we forget this little verse that Noah was righteous before God and that Noah found, he did not earn, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's not something that uh, that we want to overlook in this narrative either, right? Well, that's right. And I think uh, Noah had that uh, assurance even before the waters came. Because mm. God said, I want you to take on board all these animals. And by the way, you need to take seven pairs of these, only one pair of these others. The ones where he said seven pairs, those are the ones we need uh, to launch civilization. So God says, I want you to take 14 of those. And I want you to take food and water, enough food and water to last a couple of years. So I think Noah right away realized, okay, God wants me to start over. He's making sure I got all the resources to start over. I'm convinced he had seeds on board the ark that he could plant right afterwards. Because what does it tell us in uh, chapter 9? Right away, we got Noah planting a vineyard, which means he had to be equipped with that ahead of time. Right. So I think Noah and his family were given the assurance, look, I've not forgot about you. I'm giving you everything you need uh, to quickly relaunch. Right. And I love the, when I was, I'm an adult convert to Christianity. When I was first reading through the Noah story, uh, and it comes to the point where it says, and God closed Noah in the boat. I pictured this giant hand coming out of gray clouds with a finger that just pushes the door closed. But as I matured in my thinking, I was like, wait a minute, this is like fantasy. So I had this stigma of fantasy literature, like a big hand, you know, it's just inane images in my head that I couldn't get rid of. But finally I realized when I started understanding the the nature of the doctrine of the pre-incarnate Christ in Yahweh, I'm like, Jesus was 
to, to, like like he was to Abraham and Moses, that he was there. Uh, we don't know exactly how much, but he was there with Noah to at least close the door of the boat, which, you know, the ark represents salvation in Jesus Christ. And and there we have... I noticed it's, it didn't rain for seven days after he closed the door. Yeah. And so yeah. here he is sitting in the ark. Nothing's happening. Right. I can imagine all the people outside the ark saying, look at that pool. Look He's at that dumb boat. boat. It's all locked up. <laughs> Nothing's happening. Right. They're mocking. But also gives us a biblical principle here. When God sends uh, judgment upon human reprobation, no one knows the hour or the day. That's right. We know the week or the month, but we'll never know the hour or the day. Mm. I think that's one reason why God had Noah and his family wait seven days. Yeah, because yeah. well, I'm not in control here. Right, and that's that's explicitly what Jesus, as the Son of Man in, in the incarnate Son of Man, to his disciples says: "No one knows the day, or the hour, but my Father who is in heaven." That that as oh. in the days of Noah. Right, well, we'll be eating and drinking. Uh, and... It'd be really different if God closed the door when storm clouds were already forming. But to get them in there when there's not a cloud in the sky, there's not a hint that anything is happening. I imagine all those people outside the ark are just ridiculing Noah and his family. Uh, but seven days later, boom. Yeah, that's right. And and that's that's what Jesus says. You know that 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 in the days of Noah, people are going to be getting married, people are going to be eating and drinking. Um, this is going to catch people. Uh, Jesus' second return is going to be very similar, um, and, and it's quite frightening. And I, I, I don't, we, I mean, of course, we don't know, but, but, but being prepared to, to be found in Christ um, is the only way we're going to withstand the oncoming judgment of the world being destroyed or recreated through fire. And I think that's the most, that's the key thing about this whole thing, right, Dr. Ross? This, 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 is, this is historical, it's real. Um, there is a spiritual and moral battle going on that, that, that Peter says, though Peter says that in the last days scoffers will come. And so we will see a, a sort of repeat performance of what Noah must have experienced on the ark as the time of Jesus' return draws near. And, and, I'm, and I'm sure you've seen it, and I've seen it, you know, the... the well, I believe every story you see in the Old Testament, every historical event has a redemptive message. You know, one thing that strikes me when I was first going through the Bible is how often the Bible tells us that God begins his works of redemption before he creates anything at all, which tells me as a scientist, everything that God creates, every component of nature that we care to investigate has a role in making possible the redemption of billions of human beings in a short period of time. In fact, I'm in the habit of challenging my scientist peers who are not yet believers. If you will simply do your science research from a biblical redemptive perspective, it'll make you a better scientist. You'll be more efficient making scientific discoveries. For more information on this podcast, or any of the other apologetic resources from Watchman Fellowship, visit watchman.org today. Be sure to check out the story of the cosmos, how the heavens declare the glory of God. It is a comprehensive down-to-earth Christian defense of the cosmos, featuring essays on how the heavens have influenced science, art, philosophy, history, and theology. The story of the cosmos is a wonderful addition to any bookshelf or coffee table. Filled with stunning images of the heavens, high-quality gloss paper, and in-depth essays, it can be a great gift for friends, family, and non-believers interested in the intersection of science, culture, and faith. 
For Watchman Fellowship, I'm Dave Mitchell.